Our scripture reading is short, just two verses from the book of Exodus, the 25th chapter, verses 8 and 9. Let's all give careful attention to the public reading of God's words. It's found in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is true, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would sweeten this small portion of your word to our hearts and our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who reigns together with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, I, uh, I feel a little strange, but I don't feel like a stranger. It's been a while. I'm guessing, I didn't check, but I'm guessing it's probably been two years since I've been here. And um, only thing I can say is I've gotten about two years younger, I, as I'm sure all of you do as well. I, I look two years younger. I'm much more handsome than I used to be. But it is, a, it is a delight to be here. A lot surely has changed, hasn't it, in two years. Uh, a lot's changed in my own life. We've, we've gone through a pandemic. I mentioned to some of you that before Thanksgiving, I had a small stroke. Uh, I'm doing fine, as I, I hope you can see. Um, a lot's changed politically, socially. It's really quite a different world than we live in than two years ago when I was here last. I had a wonderful 4th of July celebration last night. We were out in Leesburg. We were on a lot that was about five acres, and to our right there were five more, and to our left there were five more. This was a, a country 4th of July. I haven't ever in my life seen backyard fireworks like last night. Is really pretty spectacular. On the other hand, I'm sure there are people in our country this weekend who aren't celebrating the 4th of July at all, but see it as something of a travesty. A lot has changed in the last two years. I wonder where we'll be two years from now five years from now. And, and I'll bet many of us feel two things. I'm guessing that many in this room, perhaps not all, but many in this room, uh, do not like the direction that our country is going. 
Um, and I'll bet we also feel like there's nothing we can do about it. We kind of feel powerless. That the political powers that be, media, social media, they're in control and there's not much that we can do about it. Well, what was the tabernacle? Now, that, that's like a non sequitur, right? Like, wow, where'd that come from? But I think as we answer this question, what was the tabernacle, we get some pretty helpful guidance on who we are, what we are in control of, what we can be doing uh, in the world in which we currently live. Now, before we actually jump into the um, sermon, just three little things from this text that I read. One, in most of your translations, you probably have the word sanctuary in verse 8. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And then you have the word tabernacle in verse 9. Two different words in English because there are two different words in the underlying Hebrew text. So we'll talk about each of those words as we go. And you'll notice that it says in verse 9, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. On Mount Sinai, God handed Moses a blueprint. And he said that that when they build the tabernacle, that tabernacle had to be built exactly according to the blueprint. No deviations from it. God was concerned about every detail in the tabernacle. Now, we're not going to be able to be concerned about all those details this morning or we'd be here for a week. But God was concerned about every detail as to how that tabernacle was made, and there's a reason for that. Now, we think that the tabernacle was real because it was made out of wood and it was made out of cloth and there was metal involved, you know, stuff, it was tangible, you could touch it. But as a matter of fact, the tabernacle wasn't the real tabernacle. It was a replica of spiritual heavenly reality. Uh, remember those, uh, what, what were they called? Uh, the things that we, did, flannel graph. Any of you remember flannel graph? Do kids still do flannel graph at all? No, they have no clue what flannel graph is. You know, I'm, I'm finding I am getting a little older. When I'm teaching my students... Um, by the way, I love Medicare. I have a lot less money out of pocket on Medicare than I did when I was uh, with the uh, RTS health insurance policy. But at any rate, um, when I'm teaching these students, uh, I'll make allusions to like TV programs, uh, commercials, music, and like, they have no clue what I'm talking about. I, I, I realize that I'm in a different, I'm in a different generation. But at any rate, I do, I do my best. So, um, 
the, the, the tabernacle had to be made exactly like the directions because those directions were themselves a copy of heavenly spiritual reality. If you look just for a second at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, uh, it talks about the priests and everything associated with the tabernacle and later the temple. And it says they serve at a sanctuary. There's our word. They serve at a sanctuary uh, that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. See, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, they were, they were replicas, they were copies, they were shadows. Uh, if there were a spotlight on that back wall, well, it might work. No, it kind of does. The, can you see my hand on that wall ever so slightly? If you do, you have better vision than I do. But at any rate, if there were a brighter light back there, you'd see a shadow back there. That shadow's not in my hand. It's not the real thing. This is the real thing. And, and so the, the tabernacle and the temple, they were shadows. They were shadows that were pointing to some other heavenly spiritual reality. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The reason why it had to be made according to the instructions was because those instructions were like a photograph of spiritual reality in heaven. And the earthly replica had to match the real thing in heaven. Now we're going to come back to this point uh, a little in a little bit. Uh, but just those three things. We got a sanctuary, we got a tabernacle, and it's not real, it's a shadow, it's pointing us to some other spiritual reality. Well, our question, what is, what is, what was the tabernacle? Three things. See, I'm a good Presbyterian. We have three things. Three words. If you take away these three words, take them home with you, with some comprehension, you'll know what the tabernacle was, and you'll know something of how to live in this present age. First of all, the tabernacle was a sanctuary. That's the word that is chosen uh, for us in verse 8 of our text, a sanctuary. Now, the word sanctuary, when we think of that, some of us might think of this room. When I grew up, we, would, we weren't allowed to eat in the sanctuary. Uh, we weren't allowed to run in the sanctuary. We weren't allowed to play in the sanctuary. Um, sanctuaries related to sanctification. Somebody who's being sanctified is becoming more what? Holy. So sanctuary is, don't think of a bird sanctuary. Think of holy space. That's what a sanctuary is. It's holy space. It is consecrated space. In Exodus 40, verse 9, uh, God says, take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it, consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it will be holy. Well, as I get older, there are some things that I 
love more. One thing I love more is I love reading the Bible in Hebrew more. Uh, It's something that I've been doing for a long, long time. Started in the 70s. But it hasn't grown old. I just love it. And you do see things from time to time when you're reading the Bible in Hebrew that you don't see in, in translation. If I could translate this another way, take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it, holy it and all of its furnishings, and it will be holy. Now, that doesn't make any sense in English because holy is not a verb. We don't holy things. What do we do? We consecrate them. But what does consecrate mean? It means set something apart for holy use. Uh, Seth does that in one way or another. He'll do it next week. He will pray and he will consecrate. He will set apart ordinary bread, ordinary wine for special use. That it might be a means of grace to your hearts and lives. It's conse- the tabernacle was consecrated, holy space. And as you probably know, it was three divisions. There was a, a courtyard, like a big fenced-in area for the tabernacle. Courtyard. All of us were allowed in there. Then there was the tabernacle proper, which had two rooms, rectangle, One of them bigger and longer. One of them was a square. Uh, And the, the bigger and longer one was the holy place. And then the most holy place. What You see, the whole tabernacle was holy. Canaanites, Amorites, Babylonians, Assyrians, they weren't allowed in the courtyard because it was holy. But as lay people, you weren't allowed in the tabernacle proper. Only the priest could go in there. And only the high priest once a year could go into the most holy place. See, it's all about holy space. Something that is, as modern Protestants, we don't think much about this. Uh, anybody here grow up Roman Catholic? If you grew up Roman Catholic, you probably, from your upbringing, have a little bit better sense of. See, I, I don't. I wouldn't call this the tabernacle. This is the auditorium. But in in Roman Catholicism, there's more sanctity to the sanctuary. Uh, you wouldn't think of a Roman Catholic as going uh, walking beyond the uh, the altar rail. Only the priest and deacons would go back there. Ordinary lay people wouldn't go back there. I remember my grandmother, Polish Catholic. Uh, after Vatican II, priest was walking down the aisle, hugging people. Went to hug my dear grandmother. She almost died of a cardiac arrest. <laughs> At the thought, just the thought of touching the priest was more than her old Polish mind could handle. So if you grew up in a different tradition, uh, you might have a better sense of holy space than we as Protestants do, but that's what we're talking about here. And Now, if it's all holy, why is some more holy? And why is that one little room 
most holy? What made it holy space? Well, uh, the tabernacle as a sanctuary was holy space, and it's where God lived. That's what made it holy. Now, God lived in the whole house, you might say, but he especially lived in that, where the Ark of the Covenant was, in that most holy space. And that's why you, you and I couldn't even get close to that. See, the closer you get to the most holy space, the closer you get to God. And later on in the temple, by the way, that, that, it was a perfect cube. Ten cubits by ten cubits by ten cubits. And uh, while cubits don't make much sense, the tens do. Because three is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of perfection. Three plus seven is the perfection of perfection. And this is perfection cubed. All that, mean, all that means something. The, the point is, when you were in the most holy place, you were in the very presence of God. That's why it was holy. It was holy because it was a place where God lived. That's why our text says, make a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. God lived right in the center of his people. Uh, it's not like all of God's people lived downtown and God was out in the suburbs. He lived in the center of his people. In Numbers 3, it talks about the Levites. The Levites were a special tribe that had the responsibility of taking care of the tabernacle. And it specifies which tribe was to kind of sit where in relationship to the tabernacle. And and the Gershonites, you probably will not remember that this afternoon, they were to be on the west, the Kohathites were on the south, the Merarahites were on the north, and then Moses and Aaron were on the east. We're going to come back to that east in a moment. In other words, the, you have this group of Levites and this group of Levites and this group of Levites and this group of Levites, and where was God? He was right in the middle. The tabernacle was holy space. It was made holy because of the presence of God. And it was a, it was like your house. Only it wasn't your house. It was God's house. And it was right in the middle of his people. When the people of God marched in those 40 years of wandering and they, they, they were with the tabernacle, everything was specified as to which tribes were in front, east, west, north, south, and where did the tabernacle reside? Right in the middle of all of God's people. The tabernacle is the presence of God, the holy presence of God among God's people. So what was the tabernacle? It was a sanctuary. It was holy space where God lived right in the middle of his people. Now, number two, here's your second word. You got to take the word uh, sanctuary home. Your second word is replica. It was a replica. Now, we've already seen that it was a, a replica of heavenly reality, but I'm saying that it was a replica in a, in a different way than that, although related. The tabernacle was a replica of the very first 
sanctuary that God ever put on the earth. The reality is heavenly and spiritual, but in the beginning, God put a sanctuary on the earth. Now, you're not used to thinking of it as a sanctuary, perhaps, but it was. You're used to calling it the Garden of Eden. But the Garden of Eden wasn't just like a place to go and smell the roses. The Garden of Eden was a sanctuary, and the tabernacle and later the temple were replicas of that Garden of Eden. So when people entered the tabernacle or later the temple, they would say, oh, I have just re-entered the Garden of Eden. Now, this is where we could, uh, we could take really a couple of hours easily and look at the ways in which this replica business works. But I only want to illustrate it for you to make my point. Uh, first of all, the entrance to the tabernacle was on the east, and the entrance to the garden was on the east. That's not a coincidence. Genesis 3.24, after God drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Give me another word for way. Starts with E-N-T. Entrance. So God, God kicked them out and he placed guards on the east side where the entrance was, Garden of Eden. Numbers 3, 38. Moses and Aaron and his sons were to camp to the east of the tabernacle toward the sunrise. Now, the Bible never makes crystal clear why all of this stuff faced east, but it does hint at it, toward the sunrise. What's light associated with in the Bible? It also starts with L. Life. And so as the sun rises and its rays flood the tabernacle, the temple, the Garden of Eden. It speaks of life. That's what God is all about. God is the author of life. And so, the eastward, related to the sunrise, is no doubt related to life. Jesus said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have what? The light of Life, light and life going together. So the entrance is on the east, and as we've already seen, there are guards at the entrance. Remember the Numbers 338. Moses and Aaron and his sons were to camp to the east of the tabernacle toward the sunrise in front of the tent of meeting. They were responsible to guard the sanctuary on behalf of the Israelites. Anyone else who approached the sanctuary was to be put to death. This is holy space. Uh, you can't just go in at will. If you tried to go in and you were not qualified, there were guards there who would put you to death. There are psalms that are related to this concept. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Not just anybody. 
I remember once, way back when we lived in uh, Southern California, there was a new Mormon temple that had just been built. And it was before that temple was, what's the C word, C-O-N? It's before it was consecrated. So there was a time when they would let non-Mormons in to see it. And uh, so with a friend, we went and we visited inside this temple. You know, after that was done, they cleansed it. They took out, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of dollars worth of carpeting. Because we had, we weren't qualified to be there. Trust me, after that consecration, I couldn't have gotten back in. Not only could I have not gotten back in, if you were a Mormon, but you were not a temple Mormon, you couldn't get in. See, there's this concept of holy space. And uh, there were guards at the tabernacle, Moses and Aaron and folks like him, and they were responsible to guard the sanctity. They couldn't let anybody who was unholy or unclean come in and defile the sanctity of the sanctuary. Well, that's just like the Garden of Eden. After God drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, we, we could talk about many more things. We could talk about the tree of life. Uh, the, the, in, the, um, in the tabernacle and later in the temple, there was the lampstand. It, it kind of looks like a menorah, if you have any Jewish friends, and Hanukkah, but it was different in the number of branches. One main shaft, three branches coming out, three branches coming out. We have uh, like stone drawings of ancient uh, trees of life, and the tree of life, one shaft, three branches, three branches. When you saw the, the lampstand, the menorah, you said, ah, oh, I'm back in the Garden of Eden. The point that I'm making here is that the tabernacle was itself a replica of the very first sanctuary, the very first holy space, where God lived right in the middle of his people, walking with them in the garden. So the tabernacle was a a sanctuary. The tabernacle itself was a replica of a replica. It's a replica of the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden itself was a replica of spiritual reality, of God and God's vision to live in his fullness in the middle of his people. So here comes our third word. First word, sanctuary. Second word, replica. Third word, anticipation. Reminds me of a song. What was it? There was a 60s or 70s song. Carly Simon. Yeah, I I don't know. I probably don't want to know what the lyrics were about. It might not fit this, but at any rate, that popped into my mind. Uh, By the way, I have a past now uh, that I didn't used to have. My wife used to ask me to do things or to get stuff, and I would would forget. Now when I forget, I just say, that's a stroke. (laughs) So it's, it's, and now my kids even use it. 
uh, my, my one son forgot something, and he said to my mother, that's dad's stroke. <laughs> so uh, it does, does come in handy from time to time. Anticipation. Remember, it's a shadow. It's, point, it, it's not the real thing. It's pointing to another reality. It's anticipating another reality, and that reality is twofold. The tabernacle was an anticipation of Christ. Now, these verses will, will all be familiar to you. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, that, the New Testament's written in Greek, and that word dwelling... You know, the, the Jews way back spoke Hebrew and their Bible was in Hebrew, but their culture changed with Alexander uh, and the, the, the great conquest of the Greeks, where now everybody's speaking Greek. And so since many, many Jews, especially those not in Palestine, are not speaking Hebrew anymore, but they're speaking Greek, they need to translate their Bible. So they translate the Old Testament into Greek. And the Greek word here and the Greek word in the Old Testament is that word tabernacle. And you've probably heard it. It sounds a little bit corny, but it makes a point. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the reality toward which all of this shadowy stuff in the Old Testament points and just read more in Hebrews chapter 5, and it'll talk more about how all of that was pointing to the reality of Jesus. Or you might think of John 2, 20 to 21. Uh, Jesus was having a discussion with some of his contemporaries, and uh, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? But, says John, the temple he spoke of was his body, himself. See, Jesus understood that the tabernacle, the temple, these were just so many anticipations of another spiritual reality, and he understood that he was that reality. Um, Mark 1.10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. At the end of the book of Exodus, tabernacles all finished. Maybe you've build a home, or maybe you've bought a new home and you did some remodeling and when it's all done, you have a house warming. Well, this was kind of like a grand house warming, but instead of people coming, it was God who came. The glory of God came and it filled the tabernacle so that Moses and, and all the other folks, nobody could be in the tabernacle because the, the glory of God descended on that tabernacle. But that was just an anticipation. The reality is when Jesus looks up to heaven and he sees the Spirit of God descending on him because he is the reality. He is the true temple. 
The tabernacle was an anticipation of Christ. It was not, however, only an anticipation of Christ. It was also an anticipation of you. The tabernacle is an anticipation of the church. When you're reading about the tabernacle, you're not reading about some building way back when. You're reading about yourselves as the church that is mystically united to Christ by grace through faith. We could look at numerous passages in the Apostle Paul. Uh, I think, is this pulpit a little bit off? That's better. It was just a, just a little. When I, way back when I was a pastor, somebody cleaned on Saturday. And it was not a pulpit that was this size. It was smaller. And uh, I, I kid you not. Uh, you may think I need therapy, but on, on Sunday morning, one of the first things I would do is I would go make sure that the pulpit was like lined up. That, that, I, I probably inherited that from my dad, the cabinet maker. But at any rate, um, I'm doing some remodeling. My one son and I are, are remodeling our bathroom downstairs. And uh, my wife listened to this person that said, at your age, you ought to be downsizing. Well, we're not downsizing. We have three well, we have two grandkids and one in the oven, uh, five houses down for, uh, from us. There's no way we're moving. Uh, so she said, if you're, if you're not going to downsize and you're going to do any remodeling, remodel for 20 years from now. So this downstairs bathroom has a tub in it. Well, 20 years from now, I don't think I want to be climbing over to get into a tub. You know, with my knee, I don't, I don't want to do that right now. But at any rate, in 20, so my wife had the idea, when we remodel, let's get the tub out and just put a walk-in shower, uh, which requires cutting the concrete, moving all the plumbing. But my, my son and I, we're, having, we're learning as we go. Never done this before, but it's coming out okay. Well, I trimmed out a window with the drywall so that we could put the towel around the window. And I made sure this was level and I made sure this was level. And then I just presumed that the people who built the house had everything else right. So I just nailed on these two pieces. And my son came in and he said, that's not square. He just saw it right away. Uh, my dad would have seen it right away. I, I missed it. We'll blame that on the stroke. But at any rate, it, 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 everything, wasn't, everything wasn't perfectly square, so we just backed it out, put some shims in. Now it is, it's spot on. Paul says that the, and Peter, that the tabernacle is an anticipation of the church. Second, Second Corinthians 6, 16. I was telling that that is the stroke. It is. I, I kid you not. You you can't believe how many things I have dropped in the last six months, and how many things I have knocked over. I was never never clumsy. I my yeti, you know, gone soda on the floor. But at any rate, if that's the worst I have to deal with, I'm very very grateful. So at any rate, 2 Corinthians 6.16, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. We are the tabernacle indwelt together corporately by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 2.21 In him, I think that was on the front of the bulletin, wasn't it? Uh, 2.22 Yeah, that's the next verse. Uh, In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The tabernacle was a sanctuary. It was a replica of heavenly spiritual reality. It was an anticipation of Christ in all of his perfection. As God with us, Emmanuel. It was an anticipation of you, the church, united to Christ by grace and through faith. It is a a different world than it was two years ago when I was here the last time. Many things have changed in my personal life. In your lives, many things have changed in the world, especially uh, in our own culture. Um, it's a different place, and I don't. I'm not a. I'm a. I'm a son of a cabinet maker. I'm not a son of a prophet, and I'm not a prophet. And I don't know where we'll be two years from now. I don't know where we'll be five or ten years from now. Uh, or 20 years from now. I don't know what the future holds. But I do know what we are to be about. We cannot control all things that circle around us, that spiral around us. We can control ourselves. We can be And we can strive to be better at being what God has called us to be in this world. You know, we do have dual citizenship. We are American citizens with a responsibility to pray for the peace of our country. To exercise our civil responsibility. And as Seth mentioned Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. We don't abandon one or the other. We embrace them both, realizing that there is a priority. And while we may feel like we can't control what's going on in the world around us, we can control ourselves and we can strive to be that tabernacle of God in this world. That, that place where, where God dwells by His Spirit. That place where, where people can see a difference. People that we might not agree with politically or socially or morally or in many ways. What do they see when they look at us? 
Do they see only the people with whom they have differences on the political spectrum? Or by God's grace, do they see the sanctuary of God? Do they see the glory of God? This place that I uh, was at last night with some extended family. Five acres, used to be 15, sold off two wings, still five acres. But part of the reason why uh, this fellow bought this property is that he never had any children of his own. He adopted nine. And, of course, nine kids need some room, don't they? Like 15 acres. I watched him. I, I only met him yet last night. But I watched him with a little one that is not one of his own. And, and I could see this. He's older now. He's probably my age. But I could see, still see, his heart for little children. It was evident His love, his compassion, his caring, his tenderness. You you could just see it in him. And and the the whole story made perfect sense when I saw him holding that little one, Emmett, and, uh, and talking, bantering with him. What do people see when they look at us? Do they see people who are on the right wing politically? That that may be. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But as Seth said, that's not the core of our identity. We are the tabernacle of God indwelt by the Spirit of God. Can they see the, the tenderness of our hearts? toward the least of these. Like Ken last night, can they look at us and see how we love each other? How we love them? How we love our neighbors as we love ourselves because we love God? Can they see Christ in us? The hope of glory. See, there's many things that we can't change. There's many things that we have no power over, but we do have power over ourselves. May God grant us grace in these tumultuous days to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the true tabernacle of God, and our mission as the tabernacle of God in this world. So let your light shine before people that they will glorify God who is in heaven. That is a high, a lofty, a noble calling that we have. And nobody can control us and stop us from being the tabernacle that God 
has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take this brief word and that you would seal it to our hearts that we might not get lost and confused, but that we might be able to keep first things first. Grant us that extraordinary grace that people might see us as a congregation, that they might see that we love you and that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. May they see your glory and may they come and join the band of those who live for your glory now and forevermore. Amen.